Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. We have entered the month of November, and like clockwork, the media is abuzz with talk of the annual abstinence challenge known as No Nut November. This challenge reportedly emerged on Reddit, and it has since spread to other social media platforms, and it involves men giving up ejaculation for the entire month. That means no sex and no masturbation, basically no orgasms of any kind. Those who participate do this for a wide range of reasons, with some claiming that it enhances strength, energy, and or focus. Now, we don't really have a good sense of precisely how many men partake in this challenge or how many of them successfully complete it, but it's something that appears to grow bigger each year. So are there actually any health benefits to abstaining from orgasm for prolonged periods of time? Also, does abstaining from sex boost athletic performance? We're going to dive into what the research says in this episode. My guest today is Dr. Joshua Gonzalez a board-certified urologist who is fellowship-trained in sexual medicine. Dr. Gonzalez is an advocate for sexual health and improving healthcare for the LGBTQ community. He is also a sexual health advisor to Astroglide Lubricants, and he serves on the board of directors for the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. In addition to pulling back the curtain on No Nut November, Joshua and I will be giving you a crash course in semenology, answering common questions about ejaculate. So, for example, what is semen actually made of, and how much is typically released during a single ejaculation? How many calories are in a single serving of semen? I actually get asked that question a lot. Also, is there anything you can do to increase ejaculatory volume? And what do men need to know about having better sex in general? We've got a lot to explore today, so let's dive right in. Hi, Joshua, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm excited to see you again and chat about your work. But before we dive into our main topic for today, can you please tell us a little bit about your backstory? So specifically, how did you get into the world of sexual medicine? What is it that drew you to this area? Well, it's it's a long journey with many, many years of training, but I in medical school, kind of fell in love with urology as a field, mostly because of the people that sort of mentored me through my urological rotations. I liked the procedural aspect of urology. And so I did a a five-year residency. And during that time, we're kind of exposed to the different subspecialties within urology. And I just really became attracted to the men's health aspect within urology because I felt like it was an area that could be incredibly helpful to men and have a pretty big impact in their quality of life, but was sort of not given the same focus or time or attention during my training as as some of the other subspecialties. And I I just thought that there was a a kind of a need to, to help men sort of have the best sexual experiences that they could. So following residency, I did a fellowship in sexual medicine and actually now see both men, women, and gender non-conforming, gender non-binary people with, with sexual dysfunction. So I sort of expanded my interest initially in men's, men's health to incorporate sexual health for all people. And all people need to have good sexual health. So thank you for sharing that and for the important work that you do. 
Now, before we talk about this whole abstinence challenge and whether semen retention is actually good for you, let's step back first and talk about what semen actually is, because I've encountered a lot of misconceptions about this. You know, for example, a lot of people seem to think that semen and sperm are the same thing and they use those terms interchangeably, which is incorrect. And many people also seem to think that semen is released from the testicles, which also isn't true. So Josh, if you can please clear this up for us, where does semen come from and what is it made of? Yeah, so I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned the, the sperm-semen confusion because I see that a lot too, right? So I think the first step in understanding what is in semen is understanding that semen is sort of the overall fluid that we're talking about and sperm are just one component of that. So sperm are you know, what carry our DNA and that ultimately can lead to a pregnancy. But those are the sperm are created in the testicle and then they mature in the epididymis, which is a structure attached to, to the testicle. They then kind of exit the epididymis through, let's just call it a highway that we call the vas deferens. So when men want to stop being fertile, they've had enough children, they can have what's called a vasectomy where we actually cut that highway and block the sperm from ever making it into the semen. So men who have had a vasectomy still ejaculate, they still have semen, but the semen doesn't have sperm in it. So the rest of the components of semen is kind of a mix of sugars, prostaglandins, and other substances that kind of help the sperm activate and and swim to get where they're supposed to go. And the fluid components come from different areas in the genitourinary tract. So the seminal vesicles secrete most of the fluid, about two-thirds of the total volume, and they add in the, the sugars and prostaglandins and some of those other substances that are important for helping sperm activate. The seminal vesicles are structures that sit kind of near the prostate and, and bladder, but not something that a lot of guys know about. The prostate secretes enzymes that further help activate and support the sperm as they're making their way where they need to go. And the the prostate empties into the urethra where the ejaculate eventually comes out. And then finally, at the sort of end or along the pathway of the urethra, we have what's called what are called Cowper's glands or bulbourethral glands, which secrete a mucus that help move the sperm. So you get a combination of all of these fluids and the sperm from the testicle, and that equals semen. So it's complex. There are a lot of different things going on there. (laughs) And I think that, you know, that's part of the reason why there's a bit of confusion out there about this. So thanks for clearing that up for us. Now, what do we know about how much semen is actually released typically during ejaculation? So what is the typical volume or quantity that someone might produce? Right. So the normal volume is about two to five milliliters, which is about a third to one whole teaspoon. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what is normal. And that may be partially informed, I think, to our exposure to pornography, where you see these huge loads and a lot of men feel inadequate, like they may not be ejaculating enough. But the normal amount is something that we use to help decide whether a person has good fertility, right? So that's one of the volume is one of the most important things that we look at. And if you have a volume of, you know, two to five mLs, you're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I have to kind of wonder, you know, to what extent porn does shape people's perceptions of what's normal when it comes to ejaculate. And I wonder to what extent that might have a bigger impact on heterosexual men than sexual minority men. Because, for example, if the only ejaculate that you're exposed to is your own and then what you see in porn, you know, that's going to create a pretty big contrast effect. Whereas if you actually had male partners and you were exposed to differences in ejaculate quantity that might be produced in everyday life, then that mm-hmm. might help to reset and change some of your expectations. But that, I don't have any data to back that up. But it's just a thought that I have that maybe the contrast effect for heterosexual men is bigger and maybe that leads to maybe a little bit more anxiety for them about this particular yeah. subject. I think that's a, that's a very interesting point because how different men view their ejaculate health and their overall sexual health, I think does is related to sexuality in general, right? I have seen in my patients that a lot of men who identify as straight and are primarily having sex with women, they do mention volume, but it's usually comes up in the context of fertility, right? It's not necessarily like about pleasure. Whereas some of the men that I see who are having sex with men, identifying as gay or bisexual, their distress from low volume ejaculate often has to do with, with the pleasure aspect of it, right? Like what is it, you know, I, I enjoyed, you know, 10 years ago when I could shoot over my head and now I can't anymore. And now that makes me feel less sexual and it has, and it's not tied to fertility the way it is for, for straight identifying men. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I thank you for sharing that clinical insight there. Since we're on the subject of volume, I think it's also worth mentioning that, you know, volume is going to vary within a person over time and also from one sexual situation to the next. And so I think that's another thing here that could lead to some anxiety is that, you know, you aren't necessarily going to consistently produce the same ejaculatory volume. And just because, you know, it might be variable from one situation to the next, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem or issue there because there are all kinds of things that can affect ejaculatory volume. And that's something we're going to get into in just a moment. But there's one question I wanted to ask you before we get into that, which is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there is this common question I get, which is how many calories are in a single serving of semen? And also, you know, a lot of people seem to think that semen is high protein, which is why I've even (laughs) heard some people refer to semen as protein. So what can you tell us about the nutritional value of semen? How many calories does it have? And is it actually a protein supplement? While there are proteins in semen, it's thought to only have about five to seven calories per serving, right? So if you're talking about this like one third to one whole teaspoon serving size of semen, that's not very many calories for that amount that you would be potentially ingesting. So I didn't, it just, I've had that question also. I just find it incredibly interesting because that my next question is, are you looking at this as a potential source for intake of nutrients? And if so, <laughs> how did we get to that point? Like maybe there's other ways to get protein, but yes, you would have to consume literal cups of semen to get a substantial amount of protein in your diet. So there, there are easier ways. 
they make powders for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's a good way to put it. There are easier ways. And I do find it so fascinating as a social psychologist why people seem to get so hung up on this. And they're like, you know, how many Weight Watchers points are in a serving of semen? And it's like, I, you know, I, I don't know why we're, we're, we're so worried about this. But anyway, right. hopefully that clears things up. Yeah, I mean, if, I think if you're doing... Weight Watchers, or you're concerned about you know consuming enough macros in your diet, you, you, you get a pass on the semen intake. You know, if, you, if, you, if you swallow, if you swallow someone's load, I, I think no one's gonna gonna um, ding you for that in Weight Watchers. I would tend to agree. Now, as we mentioned, you know, a lot of people seem to be concerned about their ejaculatory volume, thinking that they aren't producing enough of it, and even if you provide people with, you know normative information and information on the fact that there's a range and there's going to be variability from person to person. Some people are still going to be anxious about it for various reasons, right? Maybe some people find it more arousing to produce a larger amount, or maybe they think that producing a larger amount, maybe that boosts their confidence in some way. So for someone who wants to increase their ejaculatory volume, is there anything that they can do about that? So there's a couple of things that we alluded to a little bit already, and this kind of ties into the no nut November concept is that if you abstain from ejaculating frequently, then then your volume tends to increase, right? If you're in a new relationship and you're having sex with your partner four times a day because things are hot and heavy, with each subsequent ejaculation, the volume is likely to decrease. So you could certainly masturbate less, have sex less, and your and your volume would increase. But that's not any fun. No one wants to do that. So the, uh, some other things that you could do would be to increase your fluids. Semen is just another fluid that's produced in our body. And when your body is dehydrated, you produce less semen. So increasing your fluid intake can help. There's been some studies that have suggested that moderate exercise or reducing stress, your overall stress level can help increase semen volume. So that's something else that you can try. But there's not really a great medical solution. And, and this has come up in my practice a lot. Like I get guys coming in complaining of low volume and saying like, is there a pill that you can prescribe? What can I do supplement wise to, to help with this? And until recently, there hasn't really been a good option, um, which is part of the reason why my colleague and I started a supplement specifically to address this issue, to enhance volume and to a certain degree, enhance taste of semen. And we just launched a supplement that, that's called Popstar that has been a long time coming, no pun intended. <laughs> but, but we've been working on this for a couple of years, putting together what we thought were the best ingredients based on some data that had been published primarily in the fertility world that have been shown, these ingredients have been shown to increase volume. And we wanted to kind of put together a formulation that would would be successful. And we've, we've had really incredible outcomes and, and reports from friends, family, customers. So we're excited about it. So you came up with the world's first semen supplement. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, fir the first, yes, doctor formulated scientifically based semen supplement. Yeah. Yes. And I think that that's an important clarification. You can find supplements for everything that's out there, but they're not necessarily coming from reliable sources or they're not necessarily based in science or data. So yeah, so it's called Popstar and it is a semen supplement. Something else I wanted to add to this discussion of, you know, ways you can potentially increase ejaculatory volume is that 
I think one thing that plays a key role is the amount of time you spend in a highly aroused state. And so if you are someone who is just sort of rushing through sex or rushing to have an orgasm, it's likely that you're going to produce less versus if you spend a much longer time in that highly aroused state, I think you're likely to produce more. And also, especially if you're engaging in what we call edging, where you kind of get to the brink of orgasm and you kind of stay in that really highly aroused state, that can also be another factor that can boost volume. So would you agree with that, that edging is another practice there that can help is sort of a self-help strategy for boosting seminal volume? Yes. Yeah, I would agree with, with everything you just said, that, that the longer you're sort of in an aroused state, the, the higher the likelihood that you will produce a larger volume. The only thing that I, I warn patients about who engage in edging practices is that part of the edging practice is to sort of hold off from ejaculation. And to do that, you need to essentially contract the muscles in your pelvis that result in ejaculation. And some people who have tension in those muscles at baseline, if they start engaging in edging practices on a regular basis, can actually create too much tension in those muscles. And that can lead sometimes to pain with ejaculate when they finally do ejaculate. Mm. So there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about edging, but I just typically tend to caution my patients that if they are engaging in that kind of practice, if they start to have pain, that they should let me know. And, and you know, there, there are resources that I can give them, exercises, stretches, breathing techniques that they can do after ejaculation that can kind of help relax those muscles again. Yeah. So as with everything, when it comes to sex, it's really important to know your own body and pain is a sign that you should stop. One other thing that might play a role in potentially boosting ejaculatory volume for some men could also be prostate stimulation, right? We know that the prostate is involved in producing part of the seminal fluid. And, you know, it's not like there's a lot of great scientific studies on (laughs) seminal volume, right? Most of them are going to be in the fertility literature where, you know, they're collecting semen samples and so forth. But in terms of just recreational sex and so forth, we don't know a lot about this. But anecdotally, I have heard from a lot of people that prostate stimulation is is another factor that can produce larger ejaculatory volume as well. So that might be something else that some folks might consider. So lots of things there for self-help from supplements to different sexual practices to hydration. You know, as with everything, sex is complex, but there is usually a solution if you're having sexual difficulties or if you just want to change things up. Now, we have much more to discuss, including whether abstaining from sex and masturbation can affect your health and athletic performance. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Our friends at Promescent have everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and why more than 2,000 medical professionals recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at permescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is urologist Dr. Joshua Gonzalez. Let's talk about No Nut November 
right now, a lot of men are probably challenging themselves to give up orgasms. And while this internet challenge is a relatively new thing, the idea of men abstaining from orgasms and engaging in semen retention with the goal of boosting their health energy or athletic performance is nothing new. I mean, as far back as the ancient Greeks and Romans, men were abstaining from sex to perform better in athletic competitions. So before we talk about ejaculatory frequency and how it's linked to overall health, let me ask you this. Can abstaining from sex actually improve your athletic performance? Have you ever seen any data or evidence supporting that idea? So I'm not aware of any data that would support abstinence as a a means of enhancing sports performance. I I think it does get back to that sort of, whether it be classic Greek or just old world sort of understanding of, of the relationship between orgasm and sexual performance. And it was once thought that orgasm sort of took away some of your, let's just call it life energy. Right. And so if you abstain from that, then you can hold on to that energy. And I, so I think that's where this like idea that it enhances your performance comes from. You know, we see it in Olympic athletes all the time where they talk about they're, they're in these potentially highly sexual situations where they're around a bunch of really hot, you know, young, attractive athletes in these villages. But many, many athletes have said that they will not have sex until their event is over and then they kind of let loose. But I'm not aware of any data to actually support that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up that point about people thinking that semen is sort of your your life force in a way. And, you know, you don't actually have to go that far back in the medical literature. In fact, you know, within the last century, you can find medical texts talking about how losing an ounce of semen is equivalent to like losing a pint of blood, right? Because they tended to view semen as like this really essential substance within the body. And so I think that that has fed for generations this sort of idea that semen retention is sort of one of the keys to maintaining your your energy and life force, if you will. There have been a few studies I've seen where they've tried to look at, is there a link between athletic performance and abstinence from sex and masturbation? And essentially, none of them have found any support for this idea that if you abstain from sex, that you necessarily perform better or that you perform better on tests of muscular strength and things like that. The only thing that really seems to matter is sort of the duration of sex. So how far in advance did it occur before the athletic competition? And if it's the night before, the day before, there's no impact. But if it's something that is really close to the event itself within a couple of hours, there's limited evidence that that might have an impact, but it might just be because it's making you tired because you exerted yourself right before you performed. I do think that there is a big psychological component to this, and it's probably more psychological than it is physiological, where if you think abstaining from sex will make you perform better, then it just might, but it's because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not necessarily because it had some physiological effect on your body. But let's get back to that question of what do we know about ejaculatory frequency and overall health? So is there any evidence that abstaining from sex and masturbation is good for your health? Not that I'm aware of. In fact, I think most of the studies that have looked at ejaculatory frequency and its relationship to overall health have found the opposite. So, I mean, there was one study that was published that found that men who ejaculated more over the course of their lifetime had a lower risk of prostate cancer. And it was thought, or it's been estimated that for men who ejaculate more than 100 times a year, that their life expectancy can increase anywhere from like five to eight years. 
so if anything, the, the data actually argue the opposite, right? That the more ejaculations you have, the longer you're going to live and, and the less likely you, you are to get prostate cancer, which is, is one of the most common cancers that affect men. Yeah. And just one study to add to that list, I have seen a study that found that ejaculatory frequency, so ejaculating more often in men, was also linked to a lower risk of having a heart attack, right? So there could be a lot of different potential health benefits there. But an important caveat with almost all the research in this area is that when you're looking at the link between sex and masturbation with people's health, you can't really do the randomized controlled trials where it's like, okay, you're going to ejaculate this many times per year and you're not going to ejaculate at all and then we're going to follow you and see what happens to your health over time, right? We can't really do studies like that because that's unethical. So it's a little difficult to pinpoint cause and effect in these cases. And part of the association here is probably just that, you know, people who are in better health to begin with are probably going to be more sexually active. But I think it's also likely that there is an effect that goes from sex to health. So it's probably bi-directional. So to the extent that sex and masturbation and frequent ejaculation and orgasm, you know, to the extent that these things do potentially improve people's health, what do you think the mechanism is there? So how can sex be good for our health? Well, it releases, we know that it releases stress lowering chemicals, right? Like with each ejaculation and when your body is full of stress hormones like cortisol because of everyday life and you're not taking a break and having sex and enjoying it and, and having the pleasure of orgasm and having chemicals released that counteract that constant stress, we know that stress takes a physical toll on the body over time. And so my thought would be that if, if people are having sex more often and sort of counteracting the negative effects of, of chronic stress that that could potentially have real physical health benefits. Yeah, and there is data that, that supports this idea um, that has, for example, specifically looked at couples where if they have sex on one day, what are their ratings of stress the next day? And you see that ratings of stress go down on days after people have sex. And so to the extent that you're engaging in this frequently and it's providing stress relief, right, that could potentially explain, for example, the link between ejaculatory frequency and lower risk of having a heart attack. Because if it's providing that stress relieving benefit, that could be good for your overall health. I guess there's also the fact that sex is a form of exercise, right? And so it's, it's not to say that sex is a substitute for going to the gym, unless you're like doing it really high intensity for long periods of time. But, you know, I have seen studies where they've had people wear Fitbits during sex to see how many calories they burn. And on average for young heterosexual men, it's 101 calories. And for young women, it's 69 calories, right? So, you know, there is some exercise or cardiovascular benefit that can come along from just having sex as well. And then I think there's also the mental health piece where, We've seen a lot of research finding that sex boosts people's mood. It gives them a greater sense of meaning in life. And we know that mental health and physical health are intimately interconnected. And so to the extent that frequent sexual activity provides a mental health boost, then that could indirectly provide a, a physical health boost as well. So I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you know there are many ways in which frequent sexual activity, frequent orgasm could provide a boost to people's health. Now, something else I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you're a urologist and you treat a lot of sexual difficulties in your practice. So what are the most common issues that you see come up for men when they're 
coming to see you? So the most common things I see in my male patients would definitely be erectile dysfunction, ejaculatory dysfunction, including low volume, premature ejaculation. Uh, I treat a lot of men who have hypogonadism, which is low testosterone and the symptoms associated with that, and problems with libido. There's another category of patients that I see, and actually it's, it's kind of increased significantly in the last few years. And that's, that's male patients who deal with sort of chronic pelvic pain or pelvic floor dysfunction. And that can contribute to a lot of the other categories that, that I just mentioned. So it can worsen erectile function. It can affect ejaculation. So that's an important piece of what I do also. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, a lot of people have a tendency to think that when their genitals aren't doing what they want them to do, they assume that there's necessarily a physical cause behind it. And so how often is it the case that someone comes in and physiologically, like there's nothing wrong, but it's really all psychological and it's in their head. So I'm just sort of curious as to, you know, in the work that you do, how much of it is there's a physical component to the sexual dysfunction? How much is the psychological component or or some interaction between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to tease that out. I, I, I don't can't give you concrete numbers. I can tell you from the erectile dysfunction data that we have, you know, picking all age groups, only about, it's estimated to be only about 15% of men have solely psychogenic erectile dysfunction, and that the remaining 85% is either an organic cause or more commonly a combination of the two. And, I, and I've seen that in my practice also. You know, it's, it's not very common that, that men who are coming in to see me have a purely psychological issue, but almost all of them have some psychogenic component, right? So I am not a mental health professional, but I do work very closely with those people because because of of the relationship and the and the and the relationship between the physical and the psychological. And I and I and I try my best to kind of normalize that for patients, especially the ones that really want to believe that it's all physical by telling them, well, how could you not have some anxiety about your ability to perform sexually when you've had, you know, a number of encounters or a number of years where you couldn't get an erection or maintain an erection like that for any man is going to cause distress. And then you're going to carry that anxiety to future encounters. And that is just going to compound the problem. So, you know, my job as a urologist and sexual um, medicine provider is to figure out the physical issues and try to help address those and then identify possible psychogenic components and hopefully refer them to to a mental health professional to kind of work on that component. Yeah, and I suspect there's also the issue of different providers are going to have different selection effects for the patients who come to see them. And so for somebody who goes to a specialist, a urologist like you, there's probably more likely to be a physical or organic cause mm-hmm. of the sexual difficulty versus somebody who maybe just consults with their primary care provider or goes to see a sex therapist. You might see a more mixed bag in terms of some of the the causes of their sexual difficulties. But something else I wanted to ask you about is based on your clinical experience, what are your top tips for men when it comes to having better sex, right? Because I'm sure that this comes up, right? And pleasure, we know, is an important part of sex, but we're often not taught in sex education courses how to have better sex, how to have pleasurable sex. So what are some of the things that you tend to talk to your patients about when it comes to having better sex? 
That's a good question. I, I think uh, there's a couple of points that come to mind. So I would I generally tell people that they should try to be as proactive as possible, right? So you don't want to wait until the problem has been present for you know months to years, right? You want to if you're if you're starting to have problems with your erectile dysfunction or with your erections, excuse me, it's always better to get in to see someone early because we can figure out if there's a physical issue and kind of nip it in the bud if there is ideally get you functional again as quickly as possible. So from a physiological standpoint, I would say being proactive about about these things and seeking help, you know, sooner rather than later is important. Trying to lead an overall healthy life in general, everything that your doctor has always told told you or currently tells you to do to maintain your overall health, things like eating a well-balanced diet, exercising regularly, getting, you know, 7 to 8 hours of sleep minimum per night, and trying to do your best to reduce as much stress as possible. Those are all things that are good for your body, for your heart, and for your erections and your overall sexual health. So doing those things can be really helpful. I think regarding the pleasure aspect, I think you got to figure out what you like, right? So many people are walking around thinking that they should like some kind of sex versus another and haven't really taken the time to explore their own bodies and figure out what feels good to them. And then the next step with that is once you do figure out how what what kind of sex you like, being able to translate that to sex with a partner. And that requires communication and patience and flexibility. And that can be tough for people to navigate because sometimes I see patients who have a sexual problem that really only occurs when they're with their partner and not necessarily when they're alone. And so we have to try to bridge that gap. What's going on that's preventing you from achieving the same pleasure with your partner that you, that you are alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think those are all amazing tips and super important, especially the taking care of your overall physical health, because we know that your sexual health is intimately intertwined with your overall physical health. And sometimes a sexual problem can actually be a sign of an underlying overall health problem, right? There's a growing amount of research finding that erectile dysfunction at a young age, to the extent that it has a physical cause, you know, that can be an early indicator of cardiovascular disease or some other problem that's going on. So that's another reason why it's important not to ignore sexual problems and to seek help for them sooner rather than later. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Joshua. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and to get their hands on your supplement? Yeah, thank you. I had a great time today. It's always fun to see you. And and I've never heard of the term semenology, but I'm definitely going to steal that <laughs> and start, start using it because I love it. So I'm in practice in Los Angeles. If you're local here, you can Google me and find how to, how to contact our office. But generally, you can check out my website, which is just joshuagonzalezmd.com. I'm pretty prolific on social media. I use TikTok and Instagram to try to educate people on sexual health while still hopefully being entertaining. And you can check me out on both those platforms at Joshua Gonzalez MD. And then if you're having a problem with your ejaculatory volume or just want to enhance the volume or taste, check out our supplement Popstar at popstarlabs.com. 
Great. And I can vouch for you that you are a lot of fun on social media. I follow you on uh, Instagram and TikTok. So I see your videos pop up in my feed all the time. So I, I appreciate when healthcare providers, especially those who study sexuality issues, go out and they try to provide educational, science-based information for people about a subject that we just all too often never get the education we really need when we're in school or from our parents or from anywhere else. So we really need more folks like you who can go out there and do that important educational work that's also entertaining at the same time. Thank you. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.